In this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm joined by Scott McGeary to be discussing everything related to endurance training, overall volume, running shoes, cadence, you name it, we touch on it, cross training too. So this episode is very detailed, very in-depth, and you're definitely going to want to take notes on it if you're listening. Before we get to the episode, quick word from one of our sponsors. Scott, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on, man. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I grew up in the Harrisburg area, went to Central Austin East High School, um, started doing track in middle school, but we didn't have um, middle school cross country at the time where I probably would have done that. So I played soccer my whole life, like a lot of distance runners. We kind of, a lot of them come from soccer, um, particularly midfielders. So high school, I made the switch from soccer, basketball, and every other sport to just full-time distance running and did that all the way through high school. And um, then I went to uh, Duquesne where I walked on and ran cross country and track at Duquesne for four years. Um, continued that and um, and I've actually and I've continued to compete and actually gotten faster now over the past 13 years or so since undergrad um, just by altering my training making it fit to what I love what fits me because obviously it's not one size fits all um, so my running career has gotten a lot further with that you know specificity um, and then at Duquesne I did a my six-year uh, accelerated PT program undergrad and grad school all at, at uh, Duquesne and of course, all in this time, I've always been a runner, been an athlete. And so when I was finishing up PT school, I was deciding on if I wanted to go into the pure sports med route of football, basketball, um, you know, professional athletes, working with D1 athletes, et cetera, or to fill a niche of working with runners all the time. Because um, I knew from when I was growing up that there was no PT um, and there was only about one physician locally that really, truly focused on runners and, and just got it. So I made the move back home and I uh, wanted to just start working with runners all the time. That's awesome. I think yeah. it's really incredible how you're running faster now than you were in college. Yeah. <laughs> Most people know, know 18, 20, 22. That's my like, that's yeah. my peak right there. And you're just like, nah, I'm going to, you know, hit yeah. and hit that. So I think that's really incredible. And I also like how you kind of found a niche population that combines your own interests with a uh, underserved patient population. I think yeah. when it comes to running, it's not a matter of if you get hurt. It's a matter of when it seems. Yeah, for which sure. It's just very common with any kind of repetitive stress, overuse type sport like running. So as we're talking about running, as we said, runners, they, it's not a matter of if they get hurt. It's a matter of when. It's a very common sport. I think every other major sport involves running in some capacity. Why is it that it's so difficult for people? Why is it that so many people get hurt when they're running? Do you think that there's like a main underlying mechanism to that? Yeah, I think if you look at, um, and I don't know any studies on this, but if you look at younger athletes doing multiple sports, most of their injuries are not from pure running um, because you're not doing the exact same thing for an hour a day, six days a week, seven, you know, et cetera. Now you see a lot of those repetitive injuries in any sport, right? A soccer player that plays every season, three seasons in a row with no rest break, a basketball player that's doing AAU and high school ball and doing training on the side. So any of the exact same stimulus over and over again without enough recovery time is going to lead to an injury. So I think that's why you see more of the recreational or the competitive runners um, getting injured is because they're doing the exact same thing, whether it's good or not good biomechanics. Um, and that eventually just leads to an injury. Um, now, of course, you can mitigate that as best as possible by having better mechanics, having better strength or flexibility, or taking your rest time as needed. Um, but most recreational and competitive runners, of course, always have a clock that they're looking for in terms of an upcoming race or don't want to miss their long run. And so when you don't have the flexibility to alter your schedule, that's when the injuries are really going to build up. And, and most people don't. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like everyone kind of has like a natural running form that they default to, for lack of a better way to put it. And even if you change strength or you know, uh, flexibility of certain muscles, it may or may not carry over to your running form because it's right. such a natural ingrained pattern that you have done over and over and over. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's one thing to try and change someone's like golf swing when they're just starting out. It's another thing to change someone's running form when they've been running their entire life. Yeah, exactly. How much of a role do you think the footwear piece plays into it? Because obviously everyone's into like the corrective footwear and this shoe and that shoe and the orthotics. And is that something that you see as being kind of like pushed a little too much or not enough in some senses or. 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's, and that's the pendulum swings on that every five or 10 years in terms of what footwear is best. And really, if you look at moderation, it's always going to win out. No matter where you swing in terms of full orthotics, stability shoes versus pure barefoot versus uh, minimal drop shoe, but still having cushioning. Um, with everything in life, it's all about moderation and what fits the individual. Um, so if you've gone your whole life, let's say you're dealing with the classic recreational runner at age 30 to 50, you've gone your whole life wearing shoes with good support, good support, and you're running 30 miles a week and you said, I'm going to start doing barefoot or even a, just a pure minimal shoe with four millimeters of, of thickness and no drop at all. And you go and don't, and don't rebuild essentially from scratch, you're going to get injured. If you wanted to make the switch and you said, okay, I'm going to take three months, four months, I'm going to start easy again, running every other day, low mileage, build up to running barefoot. Um, you can do that successfully and become a barefoot runner or in, in minimal shoes. And so the point is really that your body is extremely adaptable. And so I think globally, your body can adapt to wear most footwear. So, you know, anytime you go into the extreme, you have to be very careful. If you overbuild somebody up in the medial arch, for instance, you give them a stability shoe with an orthotic, therefore they're not going to pronate at all. And if you don't pronate at all, you may have taken your Achilles problem and fixed it, but now you're having knee pain because there's so much force with every single uh, contact on the ground. So I think it's highly individual. I think a lot of, to go deeper in, a lot of younger people, particularly let's say below the age of 25 and 30, can adapt very quickly to increasing foot strength. And so therefore, a neutral cushion shoe works for a lot of people. Um, if you have a little bit of overpronation or too little pronation, um, just by working on your intrinsic foot strength as well as extrinsic strength into the ankles as well, can control a lot of the problems you would see in otherwise give orthotic to. If you're a 65 year old who likes to run three days a week, eight miles each day, and you don't want to spend 20 minutes a day doing strength work, yeah, just throw an orthotic in there. That's the best fix. It's fast. It's going to work. Um, but then you're going to rely on your orthotic for the rest of your life. So that's why on the younger population, if you can just really build up strength and do the, the stability work yourself, you might as well invest the time early. Yeah, so de very dependent. Definitely get it right from the start. And yeah, like you said, kind of fix the underlying mechanism naturally before you yeah. go right to the supportive device. I like the individualized approach too, because every single person is different, right? Some people are just kind of born with flat feet and mm -hmm. they don't have an arch. And me strengthening certain muscles, I'm not going to give them something they've never had before. Yep. So you have to kind of consider the structural uh, architecture, so to speak, of the individual that's in front of you as well. Because sometimes strengthening muscles and giving support to certain areas makes all the difference in the world. And sometimes there's just abnormalities that we can't fix. And you have to be able to kind of pick out the difference between the two. And that, again, speaks to the importance of individuality. The other thing that comes to mind with running shoes is a lot of people will kind of get a pair of running shoes and then they'll wear them for a year or two years and they're falling apart and they just yeah. keep moving on them. Is there like a certain time that you recommend people replace their running shoes? That's a great question. Um, so number one, I mean, it's got to be feel. And for instance, and also the maker will usually have a, uh, a set number of miles that they'll shoot for. So I, I prefer mileage over like a pure time frame. Although from some of the uh, makers in the business and local shoe store owners that I talked to, there's also a little bit of a time frame, but it's, it's a longer stretch. So maybe five to six years, if your shoe is, let's say, just sitting on the shelf, not doing anything, that rubber will start to lose its um, elasticity and it won't be as, as good of a shoe. So you don't want to just sit on a shoe for six years and then try and run 500 miles on it. But the general rule of thumb has always been 300 to 500 miles for what's called a neutral cushion shoe. Um, I've pushed that border a little bit. I have a pair of uh, Adidas Solar Glides that I run in and I put a thousand miles on because the rep told me when they raised the price by 40 bucks that, you know, oh, you can double your mileage. I was like, okay, I'll test that. And they felt good. I put a thousand miles on them. I would have kept running other than it sounded so ridiculous to put more than a thousand miles on a pair of neutral cushion shoes. Um, I've had another pair of the exact same model where at 320, my toes started to bother me and nothing else was wrong. I, I doubled down on my ankle strength, my foot strength didn't change my program. I literally put a new pair of shoes on or an old pair of shoes on like a thousand mile pair and the pain went away. And so you, you, if you're very in tune with your body, you can really tease out when it's time for a new shoe. And you get runners that have been running for 20 years. They can, they'll have 200 miles in their shoe. I'm like time for a new pair. This just doesn't feel right anymore. Um, so I'd go with manufacturer's recommendations combined with your common sense and feeling your body. 
if you're brand new to the sport, you can you know obviously ask a professional, but go by your numbers. Um, you know, if it says three to 300, 500, you're changing out every 300 to be safe. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And it seems like in running in general, there's a lot of focus on that mileage number, the volume. Mm-hmm. And for some people, 300 to 500 miles, that's a year of running. Yeah. For other people, that's a month or two months. Like it, it's crazy how volume is so different in the world of running for people. And I think we talked earlier a little bit about causes of injuries in runners, common causes. And I think mm-hmm. overtraining, pushing that volume too much is a big underlying factor that can contribute to repetitive stress injuries. Uh, for example, stress fractures. It's a fairly common injury in the running population. So sometimes it is good to push the envelope and push towards a higher volume of training. Yet sometimes more is not better, right? Difficult does not mm-hmm. immediately mean that it's going to be better. So why is it that like when we think about running programs, why do you think we need to look at more than just the volume piece, more than just the amount of miles that someone puts in on a weekly basis? Yeah, I'll see your, your mileage and volume and I'll raise you one. It's also just improper training in terms of too much intensity. Um, so not only are people trying to push their threshold of mileage, which is acceptable if you do it appropriately over a long period of time. Um, but most runners, when they're not having a pure biomechanical injury, um, or it's a biomechanical injury with a um, training issue, uh, it's that they're running too hard every single day. And so I'll talk with some runners who are literally doing their marathon pace five days a week, six days a week, which is insane. Because when when you deal with, let's say, a, re- a classic recreational runner who might do a marathon at 8 or 8.30 pace, um, so they're doing five days a week at 8, 8.30, maybe 8.45 pace. And I put that in context and say, you know, would you expect, let's say, the world marathon winner or record holder to run every single day at 4.30 mile pace? Like, no, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> okay. You know, we're all relative. We have to run. He would never do that. You would never do that. So um, not just pushing a threshold of mileage, but also the intensity and having those easy days. In endurance training, we typically go by a rule of 20 to 80, 20% intense work. 80% should be pretty easy. Um, zone two training, 60, 75% of your heart rate max, et cetera. Um, but now in terms of like the total mileage, that, that's a great question. So if you look at like the classic runner who started in middle school, high school, and now is 30, 40, 50, that those first five years, six years of running start that 15 miles a week for you know a season, maybe two, if they do cross country and track. And through high school, you're getting to 25, 30 miles a week. Even for the best runners, um, for most schools, they're going to be doing 30, 35 miles a week. You'll get some outliers that are running 50s, 60s at that young age, but typically not. Um, And then in college, if you're running in college, you're going to be in those 60s, 70s, some outliers at 80s and 90s. Um, That's, of course, over 10 years. And now as a recreational runner in your 30s and 40s, you've spent 10 years, 15 years building up that mileage. If you've got a new runner to the sport, Maybe they were a field hockey player, softball player, soccer player in the past, and now they're 30 years old. They want to get back into something competitive. And then year one, they're doing 40 miles a week with their friends who have been running for 15 years. It is not going to take long, even with a perfect biomechanically sound person, to get injured because they've not had that ability to build their muscles, tendons, bone density to tolerate that kind of stuff. Um, so that's where the mileage, you can push your mileage if you do it appropriately over a long period of time. If you ramp up your mileage very quickly, whether it's week to week, month to month, or within a year, uh, and you just have not gotten used to that, that's where the real injuries occur. So I'll give you like my case example. Um, in college, my highest weekly mileage ever was 85, which was not comfortable at all for me. Uh, my normal high mileage that I feel good at, not going to die, is like probably 60, 65, 70. So over the summer with COVID, when all races got shut down, I said, I'm going to push my, my ceiling and just see what happens. So I literally spent four months, four months, a long time for a seasoned runner like myself, going from 45 miles a week at the time to 90, just to get it. Um, and, and 90 still didn't feel comfortable, but I spent, I spent four months and I've been running for 20 years now. Um, so that's just such a slow, and I didn't get injured, felt good the whole time, felt better than ever actually. So that's a way that someone can build mileage appropriately. I've got the seasoned legs to do it, and I did it over a long period of time. If you're going to try and go from 40 miles a week to 90 miles a week in a 10-week training block 
for a 5K or a 10K or even a marathon, that's probably way too fast for most runners. So yeah, it's all about the, the, the slow build and total mileage on your body that you're used to over time. And again, as you mentioned, that's very individualistic. Mm-hmm. I like very. how in your personal case, you mentioned that you listen to your body. So you said, you know, in the past, 85, 90 felt like too much, but I wanted to try it again. I did it again, and it still felt like too much, even though yep. I built up real slow and over a long period of time. So you didn't stay at 80 to 90 and push through it. You decided, yep. hey, maybe I need to scale it back a little bit. And uh, that was something that we just talked recently with Bob King about. Um, he's worked with Olympians and all these different professional athletes in the past. And he said, you know, in general, we turn everything into conditioning when in reality, it's a speed problem. So if we look at a 5K or a 10K or whatever distance race you're trying to run, you're just trying to get from the start to the finish as quick as possible. There's value in doing that low intensity, steady state, higher mileage volume type of work. But you shouldn't have to go out and run 70 to 80 miles a week if you want to run a good 3.1 mile race. There's a element of speed to that. And if you want to run a 3.1 mile race faster, then you need to run faster and hit those higher heart rate zones. And you mentioned before the 80-20 principle, that's a great way to do it, right? Keep 80% of your training load, nice, light, easy. And by easy, we mean like, if you're running, like I, I used to run like a seven minute mile pace for most of my runs. So an easy run for me would feel like a 10 or 11 minute mile pace. And I know that's slow for a lot of people. And I know they're like, look, that's barely a jog. But you go from that to, you know, a quick interval, depending on what style of training you're doing. If you're doing fartlek or if you're doing like repeats or whatever, uh, when you flip the switch, you really need to go all out. That's where your benefit comes from. And those kind of in-between sessions, that's your recovery period. So let your body recover because that, even if you were running a, you know, faster pace, like an eight minute mile pace there, you're not giving yourself enough training stimulus to actually cause adaptation in the way that you want to. Yeah. That's one of the biggest issues that I see, as I, as I mentioned that everybody's running every run at in this mid-level state, they're not going on either extreme, really slow and really fast. And that's the easiest way when I work with runners, just talking about those principles, go slower on your slow days, go faster on your fast days or, or add fast days if you're not doing it. And that's, pretty simple method to get faster right right and the most exhausting activity is to go from a slower pace to a faster pace once you're at a certain speed it's fairly easy to maintain right think about driving a car if you get in your car and you go zero to 100 it's a little bit taxing on the engine but once you get to 100 if you just you know set the cruise and sit there yeah all good you know you can just kick back relax for the Mm -hmm. most part so the same thing happens with your body So if I know that that piece of training is the hardest, then why would I not train the hardest piece of uh, the whole program, right? Mm -hmm. So just kind of picking out the things that give you the most bang for your buck, for lack of a better way to put it. And this saves you time too, right? Not everyone that runs is a professional runner. A lot of people have lives and even professional runners have lives. Uh, I've talked with different ones in the past who, you know, they have a full-time job. And they, prof- they run professionally, even though they're sponsored, even though they get their shoes, all that sort of thing. Yeah. It's not enough to fully support them. So you have to keep in mind, too, not everyone's going to devote three or four hours a day to running. So how right. can you take that training, continue to get faster and better, but fit it into your lifestyle? And that's where I like, um, you know, we talked about the 80-20 approach, but I'm also very biased towards the uh, what I call the Gabala method of endurance training. And that's something I use with uh, a lot of my athletes who want to get in better shape from a conditioning standpoint. Uh, Martin Gabala was a Canadian exercise physiologist who was fascinated by interval training and exercise physiology uh, and found through a whole series of studies that the 10 minutes that your body gets into a higher heart rate zone, like zone four, zone five, like you're mm-hmm. going all out redlining. If you do that 10 minutes a week, the endurance gains you get are equal to running five hours at a steady state. Hmm. Um, I don't remember the exact pace or VO2 that they had the steady state um, groups running in their different trials. They did it in biking. They did it in running. They, you know, they applied it to all different endurance populations. But essentially, they proved time and time again that 
your ability to get up to those high heart rate zones, come back down, recover, and go back up constantly, up, down, up, down, roller coaster, yep. interval training. Mm-hmm. That was the most effective, most efficient, most bang for your buck way to train. And again, it mitigates some of those issues that we talked about earlier, overtraining, training volume, training load, injuries, right? So if you can do less and get better, why not, why not do it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's good because that, that's exactly the principles that we said of like, you know, if you're doing steady state for most of your runs instead of doing high interval stuff, I mean, it's not as efficient. Yeah, yeah, for real. And the, the other piece to that too, even though we're talking about like intervals and intensity now, what kind of miles are they? Like if you're, you know, down in like Delaware where there's not a hill in the state, then your miles are pretty easy. You're probably feeling pretty good. If you're up in, you know, Pennsylvania or, you know, last summer I was out in Arizona and there were some pretty good sized mountains out there. If your miles involve a lot of elevation change, like one, you're going to have to slow down, but two, you have to consider that in your overall training load and training volume. And I don't think many people do is they calculate their kind of training program, so to speak, and they don't really look at the type of miles they're doing. Are they uphill, downhill, are they rolling, are they flat? And there's a lot of other like running variables and factors that I feel contribute to the running program that we often overlook. Do any other uh, of those factors come to mind for you outside of like just the whole like terrain change and elevation change? Yeah, you have to be mindful of that. I mean, if you're especially on your, if you're on your easy day and you're going up a hill, you've got to drop your pace down. Don't try and think you're going to hold eight minute pace for your 40 minute run if there's hills involved. But then at the same time, hills can be used as a, as a train stimulus too for your speed work. So if you don't have a track nearby, if it's cold out, if it's snowy out, um, and the track's covered in snow, you can use those hills to your advantage. Exactly like you said. Um, and it's all dependent on what your goal is. If I'm training for the 1500 meters this track season, I don't have any need to go up hills. I'll avoid them like the plague right now and just do as much turnover work as possible. Now with the snow out, I'm, I'm intentionally going after them as a um, workout stimulus to build power and um, stride length, but I'm not going to hit those on a tempo run on a long run. If I don't have to, Um, if you're doing the Boston marathon, it's a good idea to get some hills in during (laughs) a lot of your runs because you want to hit them in the middle of your run at the end of your run, you would get used to them even on easy day. So you're used to the change in elevation and the change in the system that you're using at the runner. Do you think that there's like value in the, not just the underspeed component of going up the hill, but also the overspeed component of going down the hill? Definitely. You're getting into the, the weeds there now with like training. So if you're your general recreational runner doing half marathons and marathons, you probably don't need the overspeed. Um, you're going to benefit from uphills. There's no doubt. If you're getting into 5K, definitely a mile. Soccer players, mid-distance runners, like the overspeed is necessary to get that next level. Because if you can't, you get used to the cadence. Um, you know, speed comes down to cadence and stride length. Cadence being your turnover and getting faster. And it's hard to do that without a bungee system. Running downhill is a good way as well. Um, and then your stride length, which is a lot of times misinterpreted as reaching too far but really it's propelling further. Um, so going uphill is a great way to work on um, increasing your power and the downhill is fantastic for overspeed and getting your cadence up. Yeah. So sure. I, I, I reserve that for more of my middle distance people, other athletes. But if you're just a marathoner, you probably don't need the, the wear and tear downhill running is probably not worth the benefit, but 1500 meter runners to and faster, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And again, it's just another piece that's often missed and, you mentioned too the cadence role there as well. Is it about 180 strides per minute is kind of like the gold standard of what people should strive for? That, that gold standard came from a marathon in the Olympics where someone was counting cadence and like the best runners were at like 180. Um, so that's a good number for a lot of runners to shoot for. It's obviously are almost impossible to run efficiently at 180 beats per minute if you're running 10 minute mile pace. It can be done. But it's going to change a lot of things. Your flight phase is going to be larger. You're going to be taking really, really short steps. So at some point, the, the biomechanics is not going to reach that of what your cadence is supposed to be. So I, I say for most people running, so let's call it 730 pace or faster, you should be at 180. Yeah, that's a good number to shoot for. Um, yeah. There's actually been some good researchers out of Wisconsin that have, Brian Heiderscheidt, he's done uh, studies that showed that if you increase your cadence by even 10%, you reduce the knee reaction forces by up to 30%. So 
So I start with a lot of runners by just saying, just increase your cadence. If you can do five, 10 beats a minute, go ahead and do that. Um, but if you're running a marathon at seven minute pace or a 5K at six minute pace, 180 is a great number to, to look for. You know, if I'm doing the mile, I look at my Strava data and it's at like 210 if I'm doing intervals for mile training. So you don't, also don't want to, to restrict yourself. If you're sitting there running five minute pace at a really high interval for someone, um, don't be doing 180. You're probably going to be doing faster actually. Um, but for a lot of recreational runners, I would say 171 A is a sweet spot. I'd say anecdotally, most people that I throw on the treadmill for the first time in my clinic are probably at 150. Uh, for most recreational runners. So just getting that piece down for the cadence reduces ground reaction force, joint forces, um, and improves the like, running economy. Right. And it's fairly easy to pick up on that through, like, I feel like everyone runs with like headphones or earbuds mm -hmm. or something like that anymore. So you can literally pick out music that's a certain like beat yep. and then just run to the beat or you can throw a metronome on. And it can be a little tedious at first, but once you get kind of the routine down, your body's going to remember it. And you're not going to need that forever. It's just to yeah. give it a shot and see how it goes. And once you kind of get that neurological memory of it, for lack of a better way to put it, then it's ingrained and you don't need to kind of lean on that anymore for training. Now, we've talked yeah. a, lot, a lot about different training variables and factors, but to kind of put it all together for people here, as far as like how they would take these things and implement into a endurance training program, I would imagine you probably run you know, somewhere between four and six days a week for most people and require at least one rest day, possibly two at the minimum, and probably a mix of lower intensity, steady state recovery runs and a couple workouts faster type things. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's going to be highly dependent on the individual, uh, their background, their current level of fitness and their time constraints, of course. Um, so if your you know, primary goal is to run a PR and you will do whatever I say, I'd say six days a week is perfect, two speed days, four easy days. Um, you can get a little bit more fancy depending on what you're doing. If it's training for the marathon, maybe you do one track day, one steady state day, and then your long run is also doing intervals. Um, if time constraints don't allow it or you're newer to running, four days a week is fine, five days a week is fine, but then you're probably going to do one speed day a week because we're going by our 2080 principle. Um, so if you're doing four or five days a week, I'm usually sticking at one speed day, whether it's on the track or again, someone that's only has time to do four or five days a week, but they have the capability. They've been running for 20 years. They've got the chassis to do it. They could probably sneak in a second uh, steady state run or at least a slight marathon pace during the long run, you know, modified long run slash workout, we'll call it versus true intervals, slam it hard on the track of the road. Um, so yeah, I, I program those people from four, exactly what you said, four to six days a week. Um, I, Cross training is as needed if they're really beat up or they can't tolerate the six days a week because they're newer to running, but they have the time, they have the energy to do it. Cross training is a great example. I don't think it's mandatory for most recreational runners when time is our biggest constraint. You know, you're working 40, 50 hours a week. You don't have time to do cross training, um, except if you're injured or newer to running. And then strength work. I'm a big proponent of strength work for all my runners. I, I use the analogy or the um, I like to tell everybody to do about 10 or 15 minutes a day of stability work, flexibility work, whatever it is. And then I like to be people in the gym twice a week. That can be 30 minutes, 40 minutes. It doesn't have to be two hours and be intimidating, but that's my general programming for, for most runners. Yeah, definitely. Breaking that down a little bit further, you mentioned cross-training in there. When people incorporate cross-training, is that kind of like a, is there a ratio that they should incorporate running to biking or running to swimming, for example, like if I run three miles as an easy day, should I bike three or should I bike double or triple or how do we go about kind of incorporating the cross training? I, I don't know if there's any studies that correlate this, but I, I, we've always used the general thumb of like a 20% extra for cross training. So if you're supposed to be doing a 60 minute run, you can't, for some reason, you've got the kids, you're injured, you got a bike downstairs, Peloton, whatever, I would do 72 minutes on the uh, bike elliptical swimming to compensate for the differences in heart rate. Um, and ultimately it's gonna fit your timeline too, but generally a plus 20% is what we use for cross training to, to mimic the stress of the running. And then as we were talking about the running too, you mentioned something about uh, different running surfaces and just kind of overall goal in there. And that made me think back to just kind of a recent conversation I had with Bob there a couple of weeks ago in the podcast on how he said the most important thing for track runners is to own the 200 meter. It doesn't matter what you're running. 
if you're running an 800, if you're running a 1600, whatever distance, you own the last 200 meters of that race because that kick is like mm -hmm. essential to the race. Uh, and when we think about like other race distances like 5k or 10k and that sort of thing what what becomes the like cut point i guess i'll ask for that last kick so to speak so if it's a track race like we said it's the last 100 200 meters but what is it for some of these longer distance longer uh type of events well i'll start by saying that for, you know even a marathoner should work on speed work because once you get past it's a little bit different but 70 to 90 minutes you're gonna start working your type 2 fibers no matter what so if you're a marathoner and you never do speed work, you're missing a lot of fibers because when you're at hour three and you still have 20 minutes left, 30 minutes left on marathon, you're relying on some of those type two fibers to do the work of the type one slow twitch fibers, um, type two being faster twitch. So I think everybody should do speed work. Now, when does it matter for like a kicking? If we're talking about competition, you're not going to see too many half marathons or marathons come down to a kick. Those races are won and lost in the middle miles or the last six if it's a marathon. Um, based on who's making moves. Fewer 10Ks, you'll definitely see 5Ks getting coming down to a kick. Um, again, that's more track, that's more speed to begin with. So those guys, a 5K and 10K athlete is going to be doing 200 meter intervals um, anyway to work at a high end speed. So really, I, if I had to be nailed down, I'd say 5K and, and faster, you really want to have that kick, that final um, push because the races will come down to that. 10K and above, not as often coming down to a, a, a big push to the last 200 meters. It's probably going to happen in the last lap or two. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And then how about like with ultra endurance or ultra marathon type events or even like triathlons, right? Like there's a lot of people now who are doing things like an Ironman for recreational purposes. And mm -hmm. it's great. I love that people are getting active. But when it comes to a training kind of approach, I feel like a lot of people are unsure how to balance the swimming, the biking, the running, so many different like components of you know, the task that they're going to be doing uh, and putting that together into a more cohesive training approach. Yeah, that's, that's where triathlon is tricky because there are so many disciplines. It's hard enough to master one discipline, let alone three of them and not get hurt. Um, so a lot of triathlons, you know, athletes should, should have a coach or at least a program maybe that they purchase instead of just flying off the cuff because it is so intense in terms of how you have to brick some of your exercises together one day as a bike and a run and you're doing a swim in the morning and then a, a biking later in the evening. Um, it, it's so difficult to do that. But I, I'll, I will warn that I see a lot of triathletes using programs, using coaches that don't take any off days because there's so much volume that you get to get in. And that's a very risky endeavor taking zero off days at all. Um, and so, you know, no matter what program you follow, whether you're making your own or having your coach, you need to incorporate off days. You can do a two week cycle if you're really, really well-trained, not injured often, and plan it and take one off day every 14 days. Um, but you got to build those off days in. Um, otherwise, I'd leave it to a triathlete coach to really get into the weeds of the specific trainings of that kind of stuff. Definitely. It makes me think back to, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ben Greenfield, but he wrote a book mm -hmm. in like 2014 called Beyond Training. And in the start of the book, I think it's like the first chapter, he talks about what he calls a tale of two triathletes. Uh, and he talks about, you know, this typical example of what we would consider someone training for a triathlon to be doing. Uh, you know, someone who swims an hour a week, three times a week, and maybe he throws, you know, an extra pool session or two in when the race gets closer because a lot of people struggle with the swimming. Um, rides his bike, you know, twice a week, 60, 90 minutes at a time, sometimes outside, sometimes on a trainer. You know, most people don't struggle with the biking. It's usually either the running or the swimming that really gets them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when it comes to the running, like this individual that he's presenting in the case study was basically running three to four times a week, 45 to 60 minutes, just as needed, single steady pace, kind of like we talked about before low intensity, slow, steady state, death march, so to speak. Not a whole lot of mobility work, not a whole lot of strength work, fairly consistent diet, you know, multivitamin, coffee, you know, cereal, toast, the granola bars, the mm -hmm. clip bars, the sports drink mix. And then he, he breaks down the long-term implications of training like that, of not taking the rest days, of always training low intensity, steady state, not hitting the mobility, not hitting the strength and stability, 
not hitting overall force, force absorption and balance components because all these things play into running, right? When we run, we're essentially like have no contact with the ground for a short period of time. Our feet are completely in the air and then we land on one foot. So that's a lot of force going through one foot, you know, your whole body weight essentially. So if you're not stable and balanced and able to absorb force on that foot, and then you're throwing in a high training load with no time to recover and a diet that has a lot of high processed sugars and other things that contribute to overall systemic inflammation, then your body is not going to recover. And you might be fine, you know, the first day, week, month, year, two years training like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're in it for the long haul and you want to do this for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, then that's not a formula to do that. I mean, look, look at your own example, how when you were in college, you were running, but you're running faster now. So it was more of a case of consistency and the long-term uh, long haul, so to speak, that led you to better performance and not just push really hard for a short period of time. And then everything falls apart. Um, yeah, and you, you touched on some other things about getting all the other things right. Like how many athletes are getting six and a half hours of sleep in bed at 11, up at, you know, 6 a.m., something like that. Maybe it's midnight, some night. So if you're not sleeping eight hours, eight and a half hours, how can you really try to push your body that hard amongst other things like nutrition? Yeah, definitely. And the second half of that chapter was him presenting a, another case that was more similar to the way of training that he uses. Um, so Ben is obviously a freak athlete. Um, I think he said that he ran, I forget what distance uh, or endurance event it was, but there was one of them that he competed in without doing any running. It was a running event. He did no running in pre uh, preparation for it. It was like strictly walking lunges, which sounds torturous, but it, it just shows that there's no one right or wrong way to do it. Uh, in this second example, he presented someone who um, kind of jumped in the pool twice a week and just did about of 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, and they were mostly intervals in the swimming. Uh, and then if there was a third day in the pool, it was kind of a longer, slow swim, just something light, recover, move the body, something different. And she was only biking like once or twice a week. And that was the um, kind of longer thing. It was like a 90 minute bike ride with, you know, some hills, some intervals thrown in uh, and not a single long run. Uh, it was mostly 20 to 30 minute bouts of interval training. And as you got closer to Ironman intensity, uh, she ramped it up to 90 minute intervals. Uh, so the whole session was 90 minutes. Uh, and then there was like one long run before the event. And it was a month in advance and it was like a 20 mile run but that was him just walking through an example of what most people do and then an alternative method to training and it, it doesn't really like people don't really picture or wrap their heads around this concept of i can do less and still get the same benefit yeah. out of it and i think that's just very difficult for people to wrap their full head around and then i mentioned there too a little bit ago that with running there's that period of time, right, where we have no contact with the ground. We are essentially flying, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we land, and all that force goes onto one foot. We land on one foot, and then we're flying again, land on one foot. So when it comes to a strength and mobility perspective, you touched on this a little bit before. You like to see runners in the gym at least twice a week. Is there any kind of certain areas of the body that you like them to focus on? any general exercises that you've noticed really benefit most runners or any kind of common deficits that you see? Yes, it's with everything highly variable, you know, so if one person has uh, tight hip flexors, then they need to work on their hip flexor all the time. If someone always has calf injuries, Achilles strains, calf strains, um, you know, plantar fasciitis, then they need to do a lot of footwork. So there's not obviously one size fits all. I do kind of give out some people like my runners bulletproof exercises. I mean, I think most people at this day and age can now appreciate that the glutes have a high impact in terms of, you know, quality and biomechanics as well as the foot muscles. I don't think enough people really work on foot mechanics, um, even more, even less so than the glutes, obviously. Um, so first and foremost, I would say each runner know what your weakness is. If you've never had a knee problem in your life, okay, I can give you some exercises for knee and glute stuff, but you've only ever had foot injuries. 
course, we always look above and below the injury site, never just hyper focus. But if you really were short on time, I'd say do a ton of footwork, ton of Achilles work, soleus, gastroc strengthening um, to target that. If you're someone that's had a lot of hip pain, then you better be doing a ton of core work. Um, and when we say core work, of course, we're not just talking about the six pack. You and I can appreciate this. It's not all about the rectus abdominis or the obliques. We're talking about transverse abdominis, um, the paraspinals working in concert to resist rotation. That's one of the biggest things is with increased forces with runners is we're, we're over rotating as we run too much. And that puts torque on the spine, the hips, the knees, the feet, everything. So if we're resisting rotation with our core work, that's the best thing. Um, so I incorporate anytime we're doing planks, uh, TRX fallouts or Superman type exercise, it's always transverse abdominus contraction first. Um, and for anyone listening, that's where you kind of, you can think about drawing your belly button into what you're spine, not sucking in, not activating your six pack muscles, but drawing that belly button in to, to really activate like a corset type muscle in there. I do you um, cue uh, the breathing with that as well? Because you and I both know that respiratory function is huge for running, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also huge for core activation as well. Yeah, so it's difficult to get the TA to fire with breathing, especially an untrained person. Um, so a lot of times, first and foremost, they'll just exhale and activate TA at the same time, just to make sure they can turn on the muscle. Um, after you've practiced activating the transverse abdominus and uh, for a week or two, then you can start to work on breathing at the same time. Because it's difficult with the diaphragm, good diaphragmatic breathing for an athlete, your stomach should be going out, enlarging, so to speak, pushing into your hand if your hand's on your stomach as you inhale which is the opposite of activating your transverse abdominus. So a lot, of, a lot of people early on, a lot of therapists, a lot of trainers will think that the transverse abdominus has to be full contracted all the time. And that's not correct. The transverse abdominus has to have a certain amount of tone in it to protect the spine. So when we practice, like, let's say, lying down, activating your abdominals, that's like what's called a 100% contraction. So you can't breathe diaphragmatically while doing a 100% ab brace. Not possible. Not well. So as you work on your ab racing through multiple facets, lying down, standing up, doing squats, doing rows with ab racing, now you can start to modulate that and do a 30% ab contraction and breathe at the same time. So to get back to your question, I always start supine or in quadruped, working on the pure ab racing, probably with exhaling at first so they can get a contraction. Once they've mastered the contraction for a week or so and can hold for up to five seconds, eight seconds. Then I'll start to work on holding a 30 or 50% ab brace and now starting to breathe again with that. So you can hold the brace for five or 10 seconds, let's say 10 seconds, and you can get two breaths in while you hold for 10 seconds. Now we can do dead bug where you're moving your arms and legs and holding hold the ab brace. Now you can do overhead lifting um, with, a, with a weighted ball in supine while you're engaging the abs, not at the full 100% because you want to be able to breathe and live with a certain amount of ab brace tone. So that's a common mistake is people go 100% ab brace all the time, which is needed for heavy deadlifts and squats, but not for living and moving as an athlete. Yeah, definitely. There's a huge difference in imposed demand there. And I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that in uh, one way or the other, right? Like we think about core activation, as you said, in relation to a heavy squat, people will put like a lifting belt on and they're really breathing into that belt to help brace their abdomen. And that's yep. very different than the demands that running places on our core, uh, places on our respiratory mechanics and respiratory drive. So it's really kind of looking at what the sport specifically needs. The other piece to that, you touched on things like tight hip flexors and just common problems in runners. The biggest thing is runners need to get screened and checked. And it's not just finding like, oh, this is tight. Oh, this is tight. It's about mm -hmm. finding that root cause of why. Maybe someone has tight hip flexors and maybe it's just because they sit down 10, 12 hours a day. Makes sense. Maybe someone has tight hip flexors, but they're tight because they have no core strength. And me stretching their tight hip flexors might actually hinder their performance and make mm -hmm. them worse instead of better. So you really have to get to the bottom of why things are the way they are. And that's where it's important to get a coach or go seek out help from someone like a PT who specializes in, specializes in running, such as yourself. Um, or, you know, in this case, you can go back and listen to our movement screening podcast with Eric Diagati because he teaches for the FMS uh, curriculum. And he says, look, you know, these are the basic minimum requirements everyone needs to be able to move functionally. And if you can't do these things, like a squat, for example, 
then there's clearly some things that you have to work on and address before you go out and start loading and training at a heavier intensity, right? Like if I can't even sit down and squat to parallel without, you know, some kind of compensation, then should I really go outside and run for 45, 50, 60 minutes? Yeah, wait, yeah, wait, I'll just elaborate on that. Like, you know, it's so easy to get a uh, well-trained coach or personal trainer or PT to look at you once or twice, and it's cheaper than getting a full-blown injury and needing 12 weeks of PT because you didn't have your mechanics right. So I always tell my you know, current patients and anyone that listens to me, like, hey, if you ever have another injury at day six or seven, once you've rested, you need to give me a call. Because if I see it in the first week, I can fix it in one or two visits. It's not going to take you 30 visits. So people, most people are so afraid of, you know, the cost of healthcare and the time constraints of doing PT or having a personal trainer, where if you invest that upfront, spend a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks, whatever it is, you're saving yourself thousands of dollars down the line. And you're probably going to be a better athlete. There's no doubt about it. Exactly. And if you catch a problem early on like that, and then provide, in your case, I know you provide a lot of corrective exercises mm-hmm. and really empower people to take care of their own body. It's not like, you know, someone walks through the door and the whole session is basically just you working on them with cupping and scraping and joint mobilization yeah. and all that sort of thing. It's a lot of, you know, patient empowerment. If patients keep doing that sort of thing outside of therapy, they'll probably prevent those problems pretty good yeah. from coming back. Yeah. So if you have a problem with, you know, pronation or supination or some kind of imbalance with those motions at the feet, if you work on anti-pronation or anti-supination exercises, whichever you need, and you do them regularly, odds are you're not going to have an issue with that long-term. It's constantly uh, strengthening that and training that. And I'll go back on something else you said earlier about like talking about hip flexors, for instance, you know, if someone, someone might know, it's very obvious that they have tight hamstrings or tight hip flexors. And I can count on maybe one hand how many times I've given hamstring stretch in the past year to people because, and people just stretch the hell out of the hamstrings or out of the hip flexors or the calf musculature and they have perfect flexibility. So a muscle can feel tight if it's tonic or short. We use the term tight because tight is a feeling. So as you mentioned, like if their issue for the hip flexors, let's say they're tight, but they're not short, there's no benefit to stretching them. You need to activate the right muscle. Same thing for the hamstrings. I just measured somebody yesterday or uh, two days ago. I was doing their, they said their hamstrings felt tight and they had pain with the proximal hamstring right up towards the butt. And I measured their hamstring flexibility and they had in a straight leg raise, 115 degrees. I said, that's almost twice as much as me. And I never have hamstring issues. It's like, you're not tight in the hamstrings, your butt's weak. You know, know? they're just sore and tonic because they're getting used too much. So as soon as you get that initial push past, 30 degrees they got full range of motion so that's where having a professional really screen you instead of just if she goes, she's going to stretch her hamstrings for the rest of her life that's only going to make things worse or at least not do anything for her so if i take up time that she could be doing other exercises that's where the professionals come in to tease out why you have an issue not just what the issue is right and that's why you don't just go to dr google and trust the first search result that comes yeah. up because you know, if you feel like, wow, you know, I feel like I have tight hamstrings, you might just search hamstring stretches and that's yep. all you do. And, you know, it's not until like, it might, weeks might pass, months might pass and that problem never gets addressed and it just gets worse and worse. Um, I've got a patient right now on a caseload where the, uh, it started as knee pain in April, May of 2021. Now keep in mind, we're in January, 2022 right now. She just kind of, you know, let it simmer, let it simmer, let it simmer. Now that pain is all the way up in her hip. Now she has bursitis. Now she's got this, that, and the other thing. And we're trying to undo eight months worth of, you know, problems instead of one month or, you know, in some cases, even a week if they come early enough. So it definitely makes the, you know, prognosis and overall treatment a little bit more difficult. Not to say that it's impossible. It just takes you a little longer to get there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. From a strength training standpoint too, I know you've got, you know, the CSCS and other different certifications and backgrounds Mm -hmm. or of a strength and conditioning side of things. How should people go about balancing strength training with running? Because there's almost like a push right now for hybrid athletes where you're seeing people who, you know, lift pretty heavy weights in the gym and also go out and run pretty far. And they're kind of balancing and doing the best of both worlds. So is there like a good way to approach that or um, 
should, should you run before you lift or after you lift or how should people go about designing a program that hits both strength training and uh, endurance training? So it, it's highly dependent on when and what you're training for. So for instance, if you're new to strength training, your strength training is going to take a lot of your energy and probably make you sore. So I'll, I'll go off to like Brett Contreras, who's a big uh, lifter, strength coach in the business, is, is huge on this. I, I agree completely. Um, you don't want to lift so heavy that you're sore for four days because that's going to inhibit your results going forward. Now, if you're just a lifter, just doing power, you know, uh, power lifting, bodybuilding, et cetera, you can withstand that. If you're a marathoner and your long runs on Sunday and on Friday, you're going to lift since you're going to be sore for three days you're minimizing your overall quality work. So first and foremost, your, your planning and program has to be right. That's a great question. Um, so starting with your sets, reps, that kind of stuff is gonna be number one. So, and a lot of runners are also really hesitant about gaining weight or gaining mass because we wanna be of course as strong as possible but as light as possible um, with what is appropriate and healthy for us. That's a common misconception, especially for young women, young girls. Um, because you can build strength without building mass. That's been well proven now. Um, so if you're aiming your target for muscular endurance, you're gonna be shooting for two to three sets of 12 to 20 reps. And you're not gonna put on mass. Um, a lot of runners, I have this conversation all the time, like look at these guys in the gym, look at these college kids who are in the gym for two hours, six days a week. They struggle to put on weight. It's, it's not easy to just put on, you think everybody's gonna put on 20 pounds of muscle for being in the gym twice a week. That's not gonna happen. Um, but you can really improve your strength and overall well-being by lifting um, two to three times a week. So I'd say most runners, if I could wave one, two days a week is perfect. Most runners are not going to have time to do three days a week, um, nor are they going to have time to do two hours at the gym. So I think most people can get a great circuit in where you're hitting upper body and lower body and supersetting, so you don't have to wait as long, um, and doing two to three sets of 12 to 20 reps of each exercise. Uh, when you do that is entirely up to your program and your scheduling. So right now, for instance, I'm lifting, or excuse me, I'm doing speed work on the track, usually Tuesdays and Thursdays. I've been strength training for my whole life now. So it does not affect me to lift on Monday, do speed work on Tuesday, lift on Wednesday, do speed work on Thursday. Now, if I'm coming up to my race season where I'm racing every other week or every third week, I probably won't be lifting the day before my speed day, because that's four hard days in a row, which my body can only tolerate. Then, or for an untrained person, it's actually best to do your lifting after your speed day. And in a perfect world, I'd say run in the morning, lift over lunch or in the evening. That's ideal for if, if timing is an issue or um, if you're new to lifting and you're going to be sore, you can get your workout in in the morning. You'll recover enough during the day and, and rebuild ATP that you can do your strength work afterward. Cause I've done days where I'll do my speed work Tuesday morning, I'll finish my speed work and I'll go right into the gym. And clearly performance is not the same. I'm still getting all the benefits of the neuromuscular conditioning and, and improving my biomechanics and, and force output, but I'm clearly not going to lift the exact same weight, the exact same reps. I might be doing 10% less reps or, you know, if I'm normally doing three sets of 20, I might be doing three sets of 15 because I'm fatiguing out faster. Whereas if I do that strength work at lunch or in the evening, I'm, I'm in the habit of doing it at lunch right now. Um, I can do my normal weights and feel good about it. And if I'm well conditioned enough and I've lifted enough in my previous history, then I can lift on a Monday and do speed work on a Tuesday because I'm not lifting so heavy that it's going to really be detrimental to my speed days. Yeah. So, or, and if you're doing fewer speed days, only one speed day, for instance, I'd even do the strength training afterwards. So if you have a speed day on Tuesday, I would like to lift heavy on Wednesday. Um, and that would be another good way to program it in. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I love about that one, the physiological recovery, right? So as you mentioned, re uh, restoring the ATP PC system, because you deplete that with running, you use it up and you're going to need it for lifting. So if you go into lifting and you have no energy, then you're pretty much, you know, writing off the workout. And I see this a lot of times in high school and college programs, they'll run and then they'll go right in the gym. And it just crushes me because, you know, you just spent an hour going outside and running. And now mm -hmm. you're going to go in and try to do, you know, pull-ups or dumbbell goblet squats. And you, you already know that that session is just wasted time at that point. Yeah. And two, they're very opposing stimuli. In general, aerobic activity tends to be catabolic. Your body has to break down 
tissue in order to sustain you for that prolonged period of time. It activates uh, pathways such as AMPK and PGC1-alpha in your cells. So different cellular uh, activation mechanisms or secondary messenger pathways or whatever you want to call it. Lifting, on the other hand, is anabolic, meaning that your body will build more tissue in response to a high load. So if you're doing like a three or five or eight repetition maximum in the gym, you will build bigger, stronger muscles. As you said before, you can change the amount of reps you do and change the weight to avoid the hypertrophy if that's what you want to do. But in general, lifting builds strength. You get stronger mm -hmm. in response to lifting. That anabolic process activates a pathway called mTOR. AMPK, PGC, 1-alpha, and mTOR are all related. They inhibit one another. So if you activate the endurance pathway where you're building more mitochondria and you're increasing your mitochondrial health, you are inhibiting mTOR. You are preventing muscle growth and muscle hypertrophy. And that's why, you know, you look at some people who have been lifelong runners and they've never really gotten into the weightlifting side of things or that or overload principles in general, they don't often have a whole lot of muscle mass, right? Mm -hmm. So on the contrary, you see people who are power lifters or strongmen or that sort of thing. They have a lot of muscle mass and they don't have a whole lot of endurance uh, capacity to them. You know, a lot of them couldn't run a, you know, 10K, just finish it if you ask them to. So just keeping in mind that you have two opposing stimuli and you need to find a way to balance them so you get the best of both worlds. And I think, as you said, splitting your training sessions, I would say at least eight hours apart, just so your mm -hmm. body has time to recover and kind of heal from one stimulus and prepare from the other. And, re and refueling appropriately, of course, is going to be paramount to that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the, the other piece I'll mention, too, is when it comes to strength training, if you get injured when you're running, it is essential to hit the strength training appropriately in order to return to run. Uh, when you return to run, you have to do it in a kind of stepwise progressive fashion. You don't just, you know, stop running because you're injured and then start and pick up right where you left off one day. Depending on what kind of injury you had, depending on how long you're out for, you might have to work through like a slow progression just to get back mm -hmm. to run. But before I even want someone to run again, I want to make sure that they're good at force absorption. As I mentioned before, we take all that force when we're running through one foot at a time, one foot at a time. So if I have someone, maybe they tore their ACL, right? Running is more than just running. It's, you know, the basis for every sport activity. So if I have a soccer player that comes in with an ACL tear and they're getting ready to return to run, I want to make sure that they can hit like a box jump on two legs before I even look at what they can do on one leg. I don't want them, I, I think it's kind of backwards how a lot of uh, protocols and programs will tell people, all right, go run, and then we'll do the plyo activity. Because running is essentially plyometric in nature. We have single leg force absorption at play here. So just kind of keeping the overall movement and demands in mind when we do get people back to uh, running. And I know we have some different you know, PT students and PTs that listen to the podcast, and this is just something that I want to use kind of like a reality check for everyone is like you know if we have a uh, activity that occurs on one leg why are we sending someone uh you know clearing them to do that before we check their ability to do something on two legs yeah i agree completely that's one of the biggest things that i i smirk out a little bit on some of these protocols is that there's you know no no plyometrics no or you may say no jumping um, until they're running at 10 weeks, like let's say post ACL. And I, I agree completely with that. Like how can we expect them to run when they can't do a two foot to two foot jump? Um, and I think part of that might just be the verbiage that some physicians like to use in terms of like, you know, when they say plyometrics, they're thinking of a 24 inch box jump, like Saquon Barkley doing 60 inches. Like, yes, we're not going to have them do that at week 10, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, if a patient can't control themselves on two legs or one leg jumping, how can we possibly expect them to run? the femoral internal rotation and the pelvic pronation is going to be excessive. That's going to cause a lot more shearing um, at the ACL than a double leg jump on level ground. And then eventually a one foot jump on level ground, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. I agree completely. And I, again, it's just kind of taking the demands of the sport and just kind of thinking through it intuitively, because regardless of your background, whether you're, you know, just a recreational runner or a personal trainer you know, exercise science, uh, physical therapy, Cairo, whatever, 
there, there's a lot of holes left in schooling when it comes to the specificity of something like running. You know, you don't get running gate in school. You don't get, you know, uh, owner manual or a user's manual for the human body and mm-hmm. how to move it, right? So th- there's a lot that comes with running that we don't know about uh, just from our background, whether, again, whether you're recreational or, you know, fresh out of school or just a general personal trainer. So you really have to seek out and think about this stuff intuitively before you just kind of look at something at face value and run with it. Scott, is there anything else that you feel that runners or, you know, strength coaches, PTs, uh, you know, even like cross country track coaches should know about running and training for running? Well, you know, as we just touched on right there at the end, there's been a couple studies that have shown that um, just pure strength training and even jump mechanics do not translate to improved running economy which is crazy to think about because we spend so much time in doing it. Of course, they're beneficial. There's no doubt those things are beneficial. But if a runner's biggest issue is their running economy, then you have to address that. You know, I work with a lot of, I work with runners all day long. And so sometimes you get runners that were with other professionals, whether it's PTs or something else. And this, you know, I'll say, hey, I, they worked on my walking gate for eight weeks. I say, okay, <laughs> you're running for three hours this weekend, right? You got a 20 miler? Yeah, we got to work in your running form. Um, so we need to spend all the time with the flexibility, the mobility, the strength work to absorb forces, to activate muscles better. Um, but when working with an athlete that runs, which is most athletes, particularly runners in general, we have to work on their, their running gait if it's necessary. Now you look at some of the world's best athletes, you look at the, um, you know, Kipchoge or some of your other Kenyans or West Africans running and, and running a close to two hour marathon and women to 10 to 15, um, their form is not perfect. You look at some other runners running the 10K and it's much better. And my form is much better um, biomechanically than most of the elite runners that are winning marathons. They're much faster than me and they might not be injured. I'm sure they get injured because they're pushing themselves. But so knowing a runner's biomechanics and which is affecting them versus which is hindering them or, or you know, keeping them going is very important to do. And there's only one way to do it. And that's with retraining the gate you know, giving them feedback on the treadmill, which is better than nothing, of course, and then having them do that over and over and over again, and be mindful of that. That's the true way to improve running economy. Um, but for instance, you know, if someone's got substantially weak previous medius and minimus, and therefore they would have a pelvic drop, but instead they're compensating by putting their arms into abduction. If the only thing you look at, you say, just drop your arms in, put them back to normal. That's their, that's their balance. So as soon as you put those arms back into normal, their whole body is going to be going crazy because they've been compensating for their glutes. So you're already working on your glute strength, which I hope you would be doing as a professional. But if you don't translate that to the higher level stuff, the, to eventually single leg deadlifts and single leg jumping, controlling the pelvic control so they can do it, and then they can be aware of it while they're running. But direct, no biomechanical training, strength work, and plyometrics does not translate better running economy. A couple studies that showed. So I think we just have to be mindful of actually sharing, you know, we do so much time and energy on the strength work, but if you're not throwing your athlete on the treadmill to warm up and giving them feedback, so easy to say, all right, run for 15 minutes, 10 minutes. I'll see you in 15, catch up with some paperwork. Um, you know, look over, maybe don't sit there for 15 minutes, off, but look over often to give them feedback, mirror, iPad, whatever you need to do. Um, that's integral to changing your running economy and improving efficiencies, especially after injury. Yeah, for sure. Completely agree. And uh, I feel like a lot of times we fall into this trap where we look at things like, you know, the plyo or the strength and we look at it more as a, instead, it should be a training tool to increase force absorption and focus on quality, right? Instead, we look at it as a conditioning tool, uh, at least in, in certain settings, especially like I think of like high school and collegiate coaches. Um, so they, they might not understand the general principles of exercise as well in some cases. You know, I don't think people have malintention. I think that a lot of people are just misinformed and they'll go out and they'll give athletes box jumps mm-hmm. and they'll make them do 20, 30, 40 box jumps as like a cardio thing. But in reality, that's not what it's meant for. You know, you should not be doing high repetition plyo work as a form of cardiovascular endurance training. Right. Yeah. <laughs> make sure that you have the correct purpose for the actions that you're taking. And when you have that, every action is going to have the result that you want. So that's a definitely great takeaway. 
Scott, yeah. where can people find out more about you and, uh, you know, if they want to work with you or reach out with questions or that sort of thing, uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So, um, we have, uh, we have our pivot, um, clinic in Mechanicsburg and Hummelstown. We're in, um, so if you search pivot physical therapy in Mechanicsburg and Hummelstown, you can find me there. I'm on Instagram as McGeary.Scott. And, uh, we have a Instagram where we put out like, uh, sports med content and that's at sports PTs. That's the best place to see our content. And if anyone has questions, I love reaching out, talking. We do free screens, of course, which is about 10 minutes, not um, working on them, but finding out if you need PT. Um, and athletes, you know, get looked at before you have an injury. That's the best advice. Definitely. And do you have anything upcoming yourself? Any kind of big community presentations or any big like running things that you're training for uh, personally? Uh, we're doing a um, blood flow restriction workshop, actually, February 17th at the clinic, and we'll probably stream that live as well, but it's in person, about 20, 25 people we're shooting for. Um, I'm, I'm doing a uh, 5K, actually, in like two hours in Chambersburg because um, all the indoor collegiate races are not allowing unattached runners yet because of COVID. So hopefully that will change for outdoor because my, uh, my season goal is the 1500 and the mile. That's what I'm training for right now. I'd like to do about four or five track races. So I'll have to just run outside in the cold for five case until they let me in again oh man that's crazy well best of luck to you really appreciate your time and all the awesome knowledge and insight that you've shared with our listeners scott good working with you thanks man it's been a pleasure that's going to do it for today's episode of the brown body health and fitness podcast with dr scott mcgeary update for you too he actually won the 5k that he said that he was running two hours after we recorded the podcast so we definitely brought him some good luck make sure you check both scott and myself out on instagram and if you like this podcast episode be sure to subscribe share with a friend and leave a review especially if you're listening on itunes and spotify 